It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Discussions on the War of Independence usually center on battles and ambushes won, successful escapes and encounters. It's human nature, after all. But for many years after the truce was signed... The battle that was spoken about most often by veterans of the war was not one of victory. There was good reason for this. The Battle of Clonmult in East Cork was the IRA's greatest loss of volunteers in one single engagement with Crown forces. Twelve volunteers were killed, seven of whom suffered death after they had surrendered. Eight were captured, two of whom were later executed. The entire East Cork flying column was wiped out in one single engagement. The word of an informer was certainly the icing on the cake for the Crown forces, but prior to that, a catalogue of strange decisions and lack of experience turned Clonmult into a recipe for disaster. The end result? A whole community traumatised. And, coincidence or not, it was also noted that a number of older men died in the locality in the months following the battle. On February 20th, the centenary of the Battle of Clonmult will be commemorated. Using the tools of virtual travel, we're on our way to East Cork this evening to find out what exactly happened at Clonmult, almost exactly 100 years ago. So, good evening, thank you for joining us, and welcome to Where the Road Takes Me. To have 14 of their young men killed was undoubtedly traumatic for a local community. And that's exactly what happened at Clonmult. Twelve were killed at the battle site and two were later executed. Where did it all go wrong for the East Cork Flying Column, who were basically wiped out after Clonmult? Even though surprised by the sudden appearance of the Crown forces, at that stage they still held numerical advantage, but that's about as good as it got for them. Later in the programme, Tom O'Neill, a member of the Clonmult Commemoration Committee and author of The Battle of Clonmult, the IRA's Worst Defeat, a revised edition published in 2019. Also Christy O'Sullivan, he too is a member of the Commemoration Committee. Christy grew up and lives on the land where the battle took place. 
So, what makes a young man leave his home, family and friends, sometimes having to go on the run and risking his life in battle? The reason or the cause has to be important. And this cause or reason didn't just appear out of nowhere. Most of the young men involved in Clonmult would remember or have heard of the failed 1916 Rising and the execution of its leaders. But the seeds for battle were being sown decades, even centuries before that. During the course of the programme, Mary Barron, who's a member of the Commemoration Committee also, will take us through and remind us about the sequence of tragic events in our history that eventually led to the likes of Crossbarry, Kilmichael and Clonmult. John, you could say, it was started in 1649 when the Cromwellian conquest and the subsequent plantations of the land eventually led to the penal days in 1695. And then you had the persecution of the Catholics and the plundering of monasteries and people couldn't go to Mass only secretly. There's a Mass just below our place here in a stream, which I suppose is no man's land really. There's a beautiful cross carved in it, so it was quite obvious that it is a Mass rock. And all this, I suppose, helped to sow the seed of resentment for the oppressed Irish people. Cromwell would have played a big part in that, of course. Oh, a huge, huge part in it. The Hill of the Connacht, I suppose, is the famous line. That's right. After that, then, we had, the, I suppose you could say, the first major rebellion of 1798, led by Wolf Tone. And in East Cork, that was very serious, really. It was suppressed with the brutal methods of General Lake and his army. And the most famous atrocities, you'd say, in East Cork was the flogging of Fair O'Neill of Bellamacorda and the three guard brothers from Belnamona. And they were known then as the Belnamona Martyrs. That was a horrendous in the, in the summer. Yeah, and when did that happen, Mary? That was all, uh, 1798. Yeah. yeah, we usually hear a Wixford, but like this, it was very serious here as well around here. And then we move on then to another local tragedy, which is in the parish of Bertram. The 18th of December, 1834, the Gertrude Massacre at the Widow Ryan's Farm, which was um, locals uh, protesting against the tyrant. And, of course, 12 men shot in the air that day. That left an awful um, tragedy for the area again. And then we moved on, of course, to the 1840s, which was the last of the people in the Great Famine, which were left in a very sorry state, I suppose, wasn't it, really? And the immigration of a million and a million died. So people were very oppressed and very downbeat after that. The land and where the farmhouse lay and where the battle took place is now owned by Christy O'Sullivan. Christy is a member of the Clonmult Commemoration Committee. His father bought the land in 1947. There were other interested parties as well who became disinterested when they discovered the history of the place. My father, he originally a Kilcorne man, and he was involved with the North Cork columns that time. But he went to America after that and came back and he bought Clanmult in 1947. When he bought it, he didn't realise what he was buying. He, he, he bought it in June of '47, and when he came to buy it, I don't know if you're f- familiar with uh, farming terms or not, but in those years, they used to cut what they used to call scouring to put under reclave hay and straw for the winter to keep them off the ground and dry. But this was in June, and he came in to the air, and the first thing he noticed alongside the house was a massive pile of, of uh, scouring. 
and he asked for what was that there for, and uh, he got fobbed off, but he knew there was some reason why he was fobbed off, and he he insisted on finding out what was the reason for it, so they admitted to him this headstone that was up there with the names of those killed was co- was covered underneath, and the two or three boys that came before him to buy the place, when they saw the history of it, they um, would not touch it. So he found out what was under it, that he knew then what the history of the place was, but he still bought it. And he was always saying to us afterwards, we asked him, like, why did you buy it then? Well, he said, don't ever worry about the dead. The dead will do you no harm. Worry about the living. So we were born here, then we grew up here with the history that was in the place. Is there any part of that farmhouse left now, Chris, because it was burnt, of course, during it the was, It was burnt, yeah. but you see, um, in the part of the small right in the treaty that time, uh, any house the British burned during the War of Independence, they had to rebuild. So the present house here was rebuilt in, we reckon, 1928. And if we go up, there's no, no bit of the old house left. So we reckon they used the stone out of the old house to build the house in 1928. But other than that, and we go up like that, the base of the house, of the, the ground was still there. And even in the, we, we'd be in the 50s, didn't grow up, and that base was bare, like there's always ashes there, like and it never grew anything at that stage. But, you know, you'd always see any deep place to grow weeds and that, but this didn't. When we were small, then of course, that, that was our playground with our knife and fork and we sifting through the bit of rubble that was there and what we, we, we collected there then was a lot of old crockery broken and burnt bits of timber and we found eight between eight and nine shells of 22 ammunition and revolver ammunition so that little did we know how serious the history was of what we were sifting through The 4th Battalion of the IRA's 1st Corp Brigade, based around Middleton, Yall and Cove, had become a successful unit up until Clonmont. It is said that they had become complacent and overconfident, but a lot of these lads were still inexperienced, and when you factor in the lead-up to Clonmont, you will notice a catalogue of strange decisions, most notably the complete lack of emphasis on the importance of sentries and the length of time spent in any one place, especially and unfortunately the farmhouse in Clonmont. Tom O'Neill is also a member of the Clonmult Commemoration Committee. He's the author of The Battle of Clonmult, the IRA's Worst Defeat. It's a detailed and well-researched account of what happened on February 20th, 1921. So, was it one, two, or all of the aforementioned that contributed to the defeat of Clonmult, and as a result, the end of the East Cork Flying Column? It was undoubtedly a mixture of all of them, I'd say, because just before Christmas they ended up inside in a house in Klein. The house was owned by an IRA man that was on the run, the guy by the name of Bertie Walsh. 
they stayed there for the night, no sentries posted, and the British Army found out during the night that they were there. And they were very, very lucky to escape that that morning because the British Army sent approximately 38 soldiers out to investigate these, see what was happening in the house. And the British Army truck carrying 20 of the soldiers broke down, so it transpired there were only about 18 soldiers there in the end. So what happened in Clan Mould about, what, two months later could very well have happened in Clan that night. There was a, a common denominator in a lot of reversals for the IRA, not just in East Cork, a lack of awareness of the importance of sentries and how to handle and how to manage sentries. And that was the common denominator then in a number of reversals, this lack of awareness of the importance of sentries. And the authorities at that time, Tom, as well, were beginning to build up a lot of information on those involved. A uh, number went on the run, and uh, I think it was that Ernie O'Malley described those on the run as a nuisance, which might have been a bit harsh, but uh, that was the, the situation. Oh, in fact, and, and you're underplaying it a small bit because he said they were even a bloody nuisance. They were lying about doing nothing and eating everybody out of house and home. And it was as a result of that then that this concept of making use of them, forming flying columns, giving them a bit of training and sending them out to take on the Crown Forces. So that, that's exactly how it happened, because prior to about the, the middle, about the fall of 1920, the vast majority of the IRA men across the country were part-timers. They were keeping down a job, taking on the Crown Forces then at night or on weekends and then going back. But of course, the RIC, which was an extremely efficient force at that stage, was picking up intelligence on them and they knew who the, the guys were that would cause him trouble. And that then is how this term on the run came about. Just individuals just could not stay at home any night because their houses were under supervision, were being watched. And that's how they ended up going on the run and ultimately then um, forming the flying columns. Tom Barry, leader of the West Cork Flying Column, once said that to remain in any one place for one night was one night too long. There is no doubt but that the East Cork Flying Column had remained far too long in Clonmult, increasing the risk of them being spotted by spies who are always on the lookout for unusual occurrences. Yeah, because obviously when something like a tragedy of this proportion happens, somebody's like, you know, what, what, what went wrong? What did they do wrong? And even I remember as far back as my grandfather, and he would have known some of these guys. That was their the common perception. Yeah, they stayed there too long. And yes, that, that was really pushing. I, I suppose there's two ways of looking at that. They were pushing their, their luck by staying there so long. And it also indicates the effectiveness of the IRA campaign up to then, that it took the Crown Forces six weeks to find them. just shows how, how, how much the IRA had blunted the efficiency of the RIC up to then. But yet, certainly, they were there far, far too long. Now, uh, you must also take into consideration that it was only around the Wednesday before the battle that they received this mission from Brigade Headquarters to attack the train. Prior to that, they believed themselves that their next mission was going to recapture Castle Martel Barracks because they had captured Castle Martel Barracks prior to the column being formed. But because it was in between two dwelling houses, they hadn't actually destroyed it. So it was still a bit of a thorn in the, in the side. And so that was the, the perceived mission. And it was only three, four days before the battle that they received the other one. And then, as a result of that, then things went downhill further because, of course, when the commander received that mission, it meant he had to do a reconnaissance. And 
he decided to do the reconnaissance then mid-morning on the day of the battle, which was Sunday the 20th of February 1921. The story of Clonmont continues on Where the Road Takes Me on C103, directly after the break. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. It's part two of Where the Road Takes Me, and this evening our attention turns to East Cork, the centenary of the Battle of Clonmult, the IRA's worst defeat in one single engagement. Losing 14 of their members, it resulted in the end of the East Cork Flying Column. Twelve young men were killed on the day of the battle, seven of whom who had already surrendered. Eight were captured, two of whom were later executed. While hiding out at Clonmult, the East Cork Flying Column believed that their next mission was to recapture Castle Martyr RIC barracks. However, on Wednesday, February 16, 1921, those plans were changed. In five days' time, they were to attack the Cove Cork train. The change didn't obviously allow much time for proper preparation between then and Sunday. A reconnaissance for this plan had now to be carried out, and this was only done so on the morning of the planned attack, again allowing little time for proper preparation. But the manner of the reconnaissance also raised some questions, as we now hear from Tom O'Neill, author of The Battle of Clonmult, The IRA's Worst Defeat. not the normal, but the standard procedure for reconnaissance is the commander does the reconnaissance and he hands over to his second in command because obviously that's why he's called his second in command. But in this instance, the column commander went on to reconnaissance. He took his second in command with him. He took his third in command with him and they weren't really impressed with the next officer. So it transpired that instead of the second in command being in charge while the issue was missing, it was the fifth senior officer. And because, of course, he had had passed over the fourth guy there was a bit of a a, a bit of a nose out of joint then so not alone was it a weekend but it was a divided column then that was just about to get its baptism of fire so at the initial stages of Clonmult, am i correct in saying that the column would have had numerical advantage 
definitely, because and and you see this this was one of the things about Clan Moulton in the much earlier accounts. The column was wiped out by a company of British soldiers. Now that would have meant that the column was wiped out by soldiers around six to one, because the a company is normally about 120 to 150 soldiers, whereas in reality there were only 27 military in total sent to Clanmult. And of those, then the commanding officer then of the of the, the patrol, Lieutenant Hook, he had to divide up the his his troops then, and there were nine of them had to stay up at the patrol harbour at Rotorn Crossroads where the two Crosleys were parked. So that was nine out of the 27. And then he broke the remainder down into two foot patrols. And there was eight on one patrol, Hook's patrol, and then there was 10 on the other. And the most amazing, if you like, story about the start of Clanmult was that the informer led the British army to the wrong house. And the, the, the two-foot patrol did a coordinate search of the house that they were convinced the column was in. And the story is there was only an old lady inside saying her, her rosary. So, of course, under normal circumstances then, the patrol commander would have said, I don't know, we're here now so long. We've carried out our mission. There's nobody in this house. Let's get back to Victoria Barracks. But the determination and the, and the professionalism of Lieutenant Hook came out and said, no, we're going to keep searching. So he did. He looked at his map. He had no other way of, of finding out. So he looked at his map and he saw this other house. And he said, yeah, what we'll do, we'll actually search this house. That's where we're so close to it now. And unfortunately for the column, that's where they were. As the Crown forces left one farmhouse and headed for the other, their first concern would have been the sentries and where they had been placed. They would have been totally and utterly convinced that if anyone was hiding out there, the first thing they would have done was place sentries strategically around the place to warn those inside of any enemy approach. But unfortunately for the IRA, that was not the case. The two sentries had abandoned their position minutes beforehand because, remember, the column were going to be departing that night to for their new ability. So they were all tidying up inside and preparing to move out. So the two sentries decided, no, we're not going to stay here. Nobody's going to attack in this Sunday afternoon. We go down now and we pack our belongings. And the acting column commander saw them in the house and he failed in his responsibility then by literally drawing his revolver and ordering them out at the point of a gun. But no, he left them there so that the first the column members knew they were in trouble was when they saw the soldiers just in front of the house. If the sentries had been in their position and remained there, they should have spotted the British at a very earlier point because both farmhouses weren't that far apart, about 400 yards or something. Correct. And and the fact that depending, obviously, where they, the two sentries would have been positioned, they certainly could well have even heard the sound of the Crosby's arriving, which would have given them a lot of notice as well as the fact that now the patrol, the two patrols had to cross sort of semi-open ground. So, I mean, that's what the sentries were for. And to ask, answer your question then, at that stage, there were 17 IRA men in or near the house and four young cyclists that had arrived just a few minutes earlier as against only 10 soldiers. So, yes, the, the column had numerical superiority at the outset of the what was going to be the Battle of Clanwald. There were 17 IRA men versus just 10 soldiers. 
Ironically, we mentioned it earlier on about the length of time that they remained in the the farmhouse, which was unusual. And then compare that with when the informer went to Victoria Barracks in Cork and gave the information to the British. The officer commanding there, commanding the 2nd Battalion, Hampshire Regiment, decided to act at once. And the reason he did so was because he knew that units like the column rarely stayed in the one place for very long. And that is exactly it. And and, uh, the British soldiers actually said that, that, look, we have to act now because more than likely they I mean there was even a possibility that it had been gone that afternoon but the fact that they, they weren't moving out until that night I mean the British Army were, were fortunate in who they sent down to the, the fact that he was determined to find them and after searching objective number one he decided no we're going to keep searching so yeah they were determined to find them and the lack of sentries then made their job much easier and of course you see the house they were in then the farmhouse at Tranmult was on the one hand it was ideal for its purpose which was just to house the 20 men there was fresh water there roof off their head and the local population were very kind to them they they, they were well supplied uh, with provisions from the local farming community however from the defense and escape potential then the reality is the house proved to be a death trap because there was only one door in the house the front door and even at the back of the house, there was just one very small window. It seems that was um, a design feature of houses at the time, that a lack of back rear windows and rear door meant that there was much less of a draft through the house. And the current commander should have spotted that, and he should have done something about it. Very simply, knock a hole in the wall, which they tried to do during the battle, as an emergency escape route, a sort of a, almost a rat hole, but they didn't. And of course, what proved to be the real Achilles heel for the column was there was a thatched roof on the, on the house. And of course, when the uh, reinforcements arrived in the form of Javillery police, the soldiers brought back grenades and petrol with them and Lieutenant Hammond and the intelligence officer decided he was going to finish this once and for all. So he threw the can of petrol up onto the thatched roof and followed with a couple of grenades. And now, of course, they, the column had no choice. To, well, actually, they had, they had a choice of either burn to death or, or surrender. We have discussed already how unusual it was and indeed highly dangerous for a column to remain in any one place for longer than a day or two. But in this case, it wasn't all down to local decisions. They hadn't received permission from Cork to move, the target of their mission had been changed, and there was the age-old problem of money. Christy O'Sullivan is a member of the Clonmalt Commemoration Committee, and he agrees with the point that they should have been long gone from this farmhouse. They moved in here on the 6th of January and they were here until the 20th of February. They were to be moving out the evening of the ambush. But I think the column itself wanted to move sooner, but um, their commanders in Cork City wanted them to stay here because it was a collection point for funds for the IRA and 
if they move, they'd have to set up some other. Uh, that time that you you might have heard there was each farmer and all the different people had to contribute so much to the cause. And if they moved out of here, then they'd have to set up a, a collection point some other way. All the monies of around East Cork came into here, and there was um, a local man named Tom Cronin would take that money up to Cork to Shear Street to their offices in Cork to support the cause. But it, it still would be unusual, Christy, for a column to remain in the one place for such a long time as they did. Unbelievable. Like, if you go to Tom Barry, he used to say... One night, one night in, in any place, but that was, that was as much. Even my father always said the same thing, like, that's too long here, but that was the reason they were here. But then, when you look at it another way, they spent that much time here. They must have had great support from the local people to say that the authorities never got any inkling of where they were for about uh, six weeks. And to think that accidentally their last day was here was the day they got caught. For so many young men in one area to be killed in one day, I can only imagine how traumatised the community and the, and the area was for many, many years afterwards, Christy. They had to be very, very traumatised like this, uh, to think that there was so much of a loss of life. I suppose the thing about it, you had 12 of the volunteers actually died here, but then when you, when you stop and look back at it, there was only five of those killed during the actual battle. There were seven killed after the surrendering. They were put up against the cowshed and the, the black and tans went along the line and just shot them standing there. Murders, you, you'd call it like, yeah. well, there were war crimes, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Along with that, um, yeah, the 12 here, then there was the two that were executed, Morris Moore and Paddy O'Sullivan from Cove. They were executed afterwards. And you had Diamond Hurley in, in May. He was the commander. He, he was uh, killed down by Gurthul or Todd's between, got the crew there between Middleton and um, East Cork Golf Club. So the last 75% of their uh, volunteers in, in those couple of months. These were tough times. Later generations may never realise how difficult for all they really were. Difficult for those who volunteered to fight, but also for those who couldn't, but supported those who did wholeheartedly. For those who fought at Clonmalt, it is said that the seeds to do so were sown decades, even centuries beforehand. Mary Barron is a member of the Clonmalt Commemoration Committee, and she's been looking back through the years. Years of successes and defeats, but all combining to add purpose to those who fought in the War of Independence. In 1879, the Irish Land League was formed by Michael Davitt, a tenant farmer's son from County Mayo. Charles Stuart Hanley was a landlord from Evandale in County Wicklow, and he became president. And his aim was to protect farmers, of course, from the recruiting of the landlords and the unjust evictions. They organised demonstrations against the evictions, and locally life was a struggle for tenant farmers. Irish landlords rose rent as high as 44.5% here in Dungorna. And in Dungornia, a village, in the Dungornia village, a house was built for the evicted tenant farmers. And this later became the parish library, and over 300 books were gifted by the MPs William O'Brien and John Dillon and others. And Captain Donlan was a local MP from Belnorna South for the East Cork area, right? and he was the, the speaker at the official opening. That house then was later used as a meeting place for the Fife and Drum Band, who led every procession or anything that was happening in the area, into Middleton and all. Right. And then we had the Gaelic League, the local Dungorn Holding Club, and they went on to win in All-Ireland. They also used the hall. And they played a holding exhibition in Belgium as well, and many other tournaments to help raise funds for the new church in Megillah. 
I suppose during the First World War then, a new generation of Irish nationalists took up the fight for Irish freedom and the self-government. And in November 1915, with the help of Terence McSweeney and Dahi Barrier, a meeting was held to arrange the formation of the Irish Volunteers in Clanmult. And in December then, 1915, after Sunday Mass in Dungorna, Imagine John Redmond came to Dungorna to recruit for the British Army. And on that same morning, Thomas and David Kent came from Castlines to form a volunteer company in Dungorna. So they broke up the recruiting meeting by getting the local holding team to march in front of John Redmond. And then after the company was formed, then again in the local library. So after the 1916 rising, then there was a complete reawakening of the national spirit in Ireland. And the young people were inspired by those who died for the independence before and after the rising. And then we laid on then the spot that you could say to the War of Independence, 1919-1921. Coming up in part three, the sequence of events after those who remained in the farmhouse had surrendered and repercussions and mayhem followed the executions. Part three, the Battle of Clanmult is after the break. After the farmhouse in Clonmalt had been set on fire, those who remained inside had little choice, if any. Twelve volunteers surrendered and left the farmhouse. They were lined up against the wall of a cowshed where the auxiliaries began shooting them one by one until a British Army officer put a stop to it. To most people, shooting dead seven unarmed prisoners who had just surrendered should be classified as war crimes. Tom O'Neill is author of The Battle of Clonmalt, The IRA's Worst Defeat, and he's leaving that decision up to his readers, even though he does express his own thoughts on the killings of those who had surrendered. sequence of the battle, two of the IRA men were killed very fast. They were out into well and the first patrol spotted those and killed those. Then there was an attempt to break out and three more IRA men were killed. But crucially, the acting column commander escaped. Captain Jack O'Connell managed to break through and he was the only member of the column to escape. The British Army then found that there was a stalemate. There weren't enough British soldiers to overwhelm the, the defenders of the house, if you like. So they sent to Middleton, and unfortunately for the column, there were two truckloads of auxiliaries just happened to be at the RIC barracks when the soldiers arrived. So, of course, they were delighted to be sent to, to Clanmalt. Lieutenant Hammond set fire to the roof, and the IRA men actually came out to surrender. Before they came out, one or two of the IRA men decided that they were not going to surrender their weapons. So what they did was they threw their weapons, their rifles and the ammunition into the blazing fire. There was a fire going in the house. What happened then was when they were forced to surrender because the catch was on fire, they were choking with the smoke and... The British Army officer had given them an undertaking that nothing would happen to them if they surrendered. What, what happened then was 12 of them decided to surrender first. 12 of the IRA men came out first to surrender. Uh, they were all ordered up against the, the cowshed and seven of them were killed. Of the four young lads then, only three of them were wounded. And the last IRA man then, he'd been shot in the mouth and the bullet amazingly 
just went through his lip and lodged in between his teeth. So he had a miraculous escape. This all happened then before the British Army officer stopped the auxiliaries from killing any more. And that was Lieutenant Coe, was it? That's not mentioned. It, it, it's actually not mentioned which of them actually stopped. It just said a British Army officer stopped them. Now, there, there were four British Army officers there. There was Cole, Cook, Hammond and Dove. Now, the thing is that you've got to bear in mind as well that what the British Army said in their after-action report was that when the first of them came out to surrender, there were shots fired from the, the house. And that's why the auxiliaries opened up and started killing the, um, the the prisoners. But to me, that doesn't actually add up because the fact of the matter is that in reality, for the auxiliaries, this was in effect their revenge for Kilmichael because Kilmichael had only happened a couple of months earlier and this was the first occasion that the auxiliaries had managed to capture active via Raymond. So to me, the killing after the surrender was, if you like, revenge for Kilmichael and for the attack on their colleagues uh, on the main street in Middleton at the end of December. The bodies of the 12 men lay in Clonmult overnight. It is said that a warning was given that if they were removed, the area would be burned. How true that is, we are not certain. Tom O'Neill again takes up the story. There were 12 bodies left at Clonmult on that Sunday evening. And the priority now was for the Crown Forces. Now, the Crown Forces is a term used on occasions when the British Army and the RIC or the auxiliaries are jointly involved. If the British Army were involved, could have been the Army. If the RIC were involved, whereas when the two or the three forces were involved, it generally Crown Forces. Now, when the battle was over then, the house was searched, weapons were confiscated and collected and taken back to the trucks. The British Army and the, the auxiliaries moved out and they brought their eight prisoners with them. They brought them into Middleton to have them identified and from there to Victoria Barracks where the unwounded prisoners were put into the brigade cage and the edge of the square and the remainder were sent down to the military hospital. On Monday morning then, the British Army came back and did a thorough search and removed the bodies. And the bodies were taken to Victoria Barracks into the, the mortuary. And on Wednesday morning then, there was a military court of inquiry and moved an inquest into the killing of the 12. And the bodies were returned to their families then on the Wednesday evening. The bodies were removed from Victoria Barracks then on the Wednesday evening and 10 of the bodies were taken to Middleton and two then to Cove and the funerals happened then on Thursday morning, Thursday afternoon and the last man then was buried was Dick Agert. He was buried in Ballamacoda on the Friday. Afterwards, then, of course, in the, in the Carmel area, there was uh, the people who were 
the locals like they had to go up and live in the forestry and down into hiding really because the black and tans were around so much and they burned houses afterwards and calling to other people's houses and intimidating the wives when they were at home and wives and children so they all suffered in their own way and there was a lot of elderly people died within quite a short space of time in the Clanmulton Dungorny areas was really from the shock of the whole thing. That certainly was the case in the following months after the battle that was it um, men mostly that died and that would have been from stress and trauma? It was me yeah. mostly that died yeah it was, it was shocking really like what who died in the area like you know and then you had the burnings of other houses then as well afterwards. Mary Barron taking a look back at some of the events from the pages of Irish history that sowed the seeds for the likes of Clonmalt. Well, the only IRA man to escape Clonmalt was Captain Jack O'Connell, who made his way to Knockraha that fateful Sunday evening. Tom O'Neill continues his outline of the aftermath of the battle. Meanwhile, the three officers that went on reconnaissance, the column was being reinforced by members of the Cove Company for the attack on the Tuesday. So the company commander from Cove, Captain McBourke, met the officers after their reconnaissance and told them that there had been something terrible happened at Clanwalt and he didn't know any of the details. So the three officers drove to Nakraha and they met Jack O'Connell there. So they said, well, we have to go back and see what we can do at Clanwalt. But by the time they got there, which was late on Sunday night, of course, it was all over and they just went through and they identified the bodies of their comrades and Bear in mind that one of the officers that was uh, under reconnaissance, Joe Hearn, his brother was killed and his first cousin. Now, after the funerals then, the next thing then was to deal with the eight prisoners. Seven of the eight prisoners were tried by military court in Victoria Barracks, in the gym in Victoria Barracks during March. And they were charged with committing an offence in that day at Clanmalt had attacked um, a column of uh, of His Majesty's forces. That was something like the charge, which was a capital offence. Because remember, you were dealing with martial law and arrested in possession of arms or ammunition. There was potential there to be executed. And of the seven that were tried, the four young lads were found guilty, but they were sentenced to penal servitude for life. And of the other three then, the three of them were sentenced to death. And in the course of the appeal then, one of them, O'Leary, he had his sentence commuted, but two of them, Patrick O'Sullivan and Morris Moore, were, were actually executed on the 28th of April. And they were executed with two others that had been captured at Mourne Abbey. So that, that's, that's what happened. And the eighth prisoner then, Paddy Higgins, who had been shot in the mouth, he was tried during June and he too was sentenced to death. But the appeal got a bit technical in that, you see, the military court that had actually tried all of the men that were executed in Cork in 1921, that was found to be an unlawful court because it was a court system, it's a type of court that had been set up by the military to process these trials faster whereas it transpired that they should have been tried by Field General Court Martial. So he was released. Not surprisingly, feelings in East Cork were running high after 12 local men had been shot at Clanmalt. However, it was about to get a lot worse, as total mayhem followed the executions of the four men later at Victoria Barracks. There was like two or three days left in April, but for the month of May, there was tit-for-tat killings as reprisals and counter-reprisals for the executions. And during the month of May, there were a total of 17 men lost their lives between Middleton and Carrie Toole 
in those couple of weeks. There were 10 Crown Forces, our former Crown Forces, uh, retired um, former soldiers killed by the IRA and seven civilians then and IRA men killed by Crown Forces. So there, there were a total of 17 killed between Carrytool and Middleton in a couple of weeks of May directly as reprisals for the executions of their colleagues that had been captured at Clanworld. And do you believe from your research, Tom, that uh, the IRA ever managed to identify who the informer was and deal with him? I've actually given the details in the book and I've left it to the, the reader to make up their own mind. But in my own mind, they didn't. They shot a guy by the name of David Walsh and David Walsh was a former soldier, but the British Army authorities actually stated categorically that he was not their informer. And amazingly, the finger started pointing towards an IRA officer somewhere around Formoy. And that was he put the finger on David Walsh to take the pressure off him. And of course, another repercussion from Clonmalt was that the East Cork flying column was no more. Christy O'Sullivan is a member of the Clonmalt Commemoration Committee. They tried getting their stocks replenished from Cork and the attitude there was like, go back to where you lost your uh, your weapons. So they were planning then after that, what was left of them, which uh, company down in Capaquin, they were to go down there and hold an ambush down there and that whatever weapons were captured there would be given to the, the column here. But that, that, that fell through as well. In the aftermath of Clonmalt, East Cork was no place to be if you were Irish and had fought in the likes of Flanders during World War I. Ex-gunner and First World War veteran Michael O'Keefe was shot by the IRA in Carrick It didn't matter if you had done so because employment in Ireland was non-existent at the time and you felt you had to do something to help your family survive. However, after Clonmalt, anger definitely superseded sentiment. Ex-soldiers really had a, a, a tough time because the, the IRA tended to focus on ex-soldiers and down-and-outs if they had suffered some sort of reversal. Whereas, in effect, in a lot of cases, these individuals wouldn't have had any information to, to give to the, the British Army. That in a lot of cases, the, the information came from within the IRA themselves, from either captured IRA men or from informers within the IRA. The Battle of Clonmalt on this evening's edition of Where the Road Takes Me is dedicated to all who fought there and to the brave women and local community who disregarded great personal risk to help them. An excellently produced journal and calendar to commemorate the event is available at Supervalue Middleton, McCarthy's News Agency and Dairy Gold Mogila. My thanks to Christy O'Sullivan, Mary Barron and Tom O'Neill. Tom O'Neill's book, The Battle of Clonmalt, The IRA's Worst Defeat, the green-covered revised edition, is available from all good bookshops. Ken Perrett was in sound this evening, and thank you for sharing an hour of your Sunday evening with me. But we're back on Sunday evening next at 7. Until then, have a wonderful and safe week. From myself, John Green, goodbye for now.
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.